We are finishing up a series where we are talking about the rules of revival. Thus far, we've talked about four. The revival comes when God's people seek him in humbled repentance, in biblical priority, in earnest prayer, and in righteous obedience. And today, we're going to consider the fifth rule. Scripture speaks of many different kinds of revivals, and each of them have their own unique touches. We were talking about this on Wednesday in our the men's Bible study that God doesn't always speak the exact same way every single time. In other words, Balaam would have put out a book called Donkeys for Dummies, and 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 we just know, okay, all you got to do is get yourself a good donkey, and and God will speak to you. Or Moses would have had a book about listening to burning bushes. We we. God doesn't speak in the same way every time. Sometimes he uses different ways. Sometimes he's in the whirlwind. Sometimes he's in the still small voice. But all the time, God is speaking to his people. And revival is kind of like that. Sometimes revival has its own unique aspects. We see in the scripture, revivals ignited by the spark of humility as men repent of their sins. We talked about Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's birthed out, out of a realization, verse 6, that we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. See, it's out of that need that Isaiah's desperate plea comes. Scripture speaks of revivals hallmarked by the priority given to the word of God. We talked about Nehemiah chapter 8 and all of the effort that people put in to that day of listening to God's word. They had built a platform. They had taken off work. They had stopped harvesting the fields and they had all come together for this one day. Imagine the child care that would be needed because everyone of age was there hearing the word of God. Imagine all of the planning that went into that day. And it all shows us that they weren't taking the word of God lightly. They weren't ignoring it or treating it flippantly. They were treasuring it and carefully heeding what it said. Scripture speaks of revivals birthed in an atmosphere of earnest prayer. And I, I, I dare say find even one single revival not birthed in an atmosphere of earnest prayer. We, we looked at Solomon dedicating the temple of God. His, his prayers demonstrate that he wants nothing more but for God to be present among his people. And to bless not only the prayers, but the house in which those prayers are offered. And God answers those prayers with both his presence and his promises. Scripture speaks of revival spurred on by righteous obedience. We examined King Josiah, a radical form of obedience. False worship, abolished. False gods, demolished. False priests, exterminated. But he didn't just destroy the false. He established the true by restoring the temple, restoring the Passover, restoring an attitude of submission to God's commands. 
But in all these things, it seems like there's something still missing. We go to a restaurant and while we're waiting on the food, the kids like to play what's missing. You take all the items on the table, somebody, everybody hides their eyes and somebody moves an item or two or all of them. Sometimes it's a person that goes missing under the table. Sometimes it's nothing's missing. We just change things around and see if you could spot the differences. It's a, it's a, it's a great way to occupy little ones, apparently, but it does get a little loud. Of course, little ones, everything gets loud, don't they? What's missing, though, from this picture? We have these four things that are all so important in revival. And, and you can look in any time that God is moving, you see these four elements present. But it seems like there's something more, something that we haven't quite put our finger on. I feel like the astrophysicist that's saying 95% of the universe is this stuff called dark matter, but we don't know how to, we don't know how to account for it. We don't know how to detect it. We don't know what it is. All we know is that we have a big discrepancy in the formulas. And so there's got to be something we're missing. And that's what I feel like here. I feel like we've got maybe 5% of what's going on, but there's like a whole big 95% that we haven't explained yet. What else could we possibly need? What, what else is missing from, from, from us really having God moving in our midst, reviving our hearts? So I think it's time that we turn to the one book that basically could be called the book of revivals. And that's the book of Acts. Acts is full of revivals. Jewish Christians are sharing the good news in Jerusalem. Then when they're kicked out of Jerusalem, they take the good news with them. There's persecution, so they walk around back to their homes and, and out into various parts of the empire, and they're taking the gospel with them. They're talking to people in surrounding areas of Judah, Judea, of Samaria. They're taking the gospel to faraway lands, Galatia, Macedonia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and others. The gospel is setting roots in Corinth in Athens, in Ephesus, in Damascus, even in Rome itself. If any book could show us what we're missing, it's got to be the book of Acts. And I think if there's any place in Acts, any one moment in Scripture where we can see what it is that we haven't yet accounted for, what's missing, it's got to be Acts chapter 2. Now, I want you to picture yourself in Jerusalem on that day. It is the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. And Jerusalem is packed. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people lining up through the streets. They are swarming around, trying to find and make their appropriate sacrifices, get the accommodations, secure all the food, get everything together, ready to have this feast. And it all surrounds the temple. Everything is about the temple. The temple is buzzing. There is noise everywhere. If you are an introvert, this would be a terrible place for you to be because it is just a ruckus. Racket everywhere. You can't hardly think. And then some folks come out of this one house and they start talking. Look at Acts chapter five, uh, chapter two, beginning in verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. As tempting as it is to just sit on that verse right there, picture it. All these crowds begin to form around these guys, these ones that used to follow Jesus, and they're hearing him. That, that word for languages that's used in there, in our own tongues in verse 11, the, the, those words aren't just languages like French or German or English. It would be the difference between the Queen's English and that Southern drawl, y'all. They're hearing it in their own dialect. They're hearing it just like they do back home. And these are fishermen, tax collectors. They're all from Galilee. Galilee? Galilee is not exactly the center of academia in ancient Rome, okay? This is not the place you go to to learn all the world languages. These guys are uneducated, and yet they're opening their mouths, and everybody is hearing them as if as if they grew up where they're from. Now, some must have been spellbound by all this going on. I'm sure they pondered and discussed, trying to figure out what, what is happening here. They're fascinated by this turn of events. And others, <laughs> others are laughing, saying they, they've got to be drunk. There's no other explanation for this. The Bible tells us what happened next. Peter, Peter. Gotta love Peter. Peter begins to preach a sermon. He quotes from Joel 2, and then he begins to trace the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Interpreting scripture uh, through the lens of Jesus' life, much like you need readers, some of you, to read a book to make the letters clear so you can see and know what the words say. He's looking at scripture through the eyes of, through Christ, using Christ as that lens to interpret what it means. And as he goes along, it begins to do its work. God's word cuts to the quick of the hearts of these people and they are so, uh, so bearing the weight of their guilt that all they can do is say, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I don't think they're asking like a mechanic when you take your car into the shop and they say, what do you want us to do to your car? What's the problem? I don't think they're looking to fix the problem. I think this is such desperation for help. These are people who are face to face with their sin and they know how guilty they are, how much they deserve God's punishment. What shall we do? Peter answers them, look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you 
will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This chapter seems to have all the components for revival. It has the call for humble repentance, repent and be baptized. We just read that. It has the word of God prioritized. Peter preaches from Joel 2, references Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, and makes numerous other allusions to other passages as well. It has earnest prayer. Immediately, verse 42, right after this passage, verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to prayer. It also has righteous obedience. Back in verse four, tells us these disciples of Jesus are speaking these words that everybody's hearing in their own languages and in their own dialects. They're speaking these words as the spirit gave them utterance. Just exactly what God was telling them to say. But even with all these factors, there's still something underlying the surface. Something is missing. We got the humble bent repentance. It's expressed in earnest prayer, uh, carefully prioritizing God's word and righteous obedience to his commands. Do you notice that those first four rules are all things that we do? Now, we might need help doing them. Sometimes we don't feel like earnestly praying. Sometimes <laughs> some of us have big heads, guilty. We're not very humble. And to get, to get some of us to admit that we're wrong, boy, that takes a lot of outside work, doesn't it? That, that's not just always inherent in some of our natures. Some of us say we prioritize God's word, but we really don't look like it. We don't live it. Oh, I know God says not to worry and be anxious. Oh, but there's just so many things that could go wrong. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing that, but you just, you just don't understand. I just had to give them a piece of my mind. They don't care about me. Why should I care about them? All these things, though, they feel like, they feel like things that are on us to do. Like, like, we need to be humble. We need to seek God in earnest prayer. We need to repent of our sins. We need to obey what God has commanded. And they are. There's a lot of activity that comes from us. They're all vital components of revival, but none of them are really the cause of revival, are they? They kind of set the stage for it. They kind of, in, they're kind of there when revival's there, or they're there just before revival really hits, but, but none of them actually make revival happen. Back in the 18th and 19th centuries, if you were to ask someone, what is it going to take for the end of days to come, most people, who Christians, believing Christians, would have looked at the modern missions movement and say, when the gospel is preached to every nation, that's when Jesus will come back. They thought that if we would just do the work, if we would just share the gospel and share it with every nation in the world, count them all off, the 200 and whatever it is, if we would share here and here and here, and you could take a map and you could say, there's missionaries in that country and there's missionaries in this country, missionaries over here. We still need to go to these places over here. 
And as soon as we get there, as soon as we share the gospel there, that's when the end of days will come. That's when things will finally be ready. It'll be time and God will send his son back to earth. Because once the gospel is preached, that's when we're ready for his kingdom. Except World War I, the war to end all wars. It was such a gruesome war to end all wars that 20 years later, we fought another one. The gulags started forming in Russia. The Holocaust saw massive numbers of Jews, gypsies, undesirables in the German mind killed, tormented. Conditions in the African continent got worse and worse. By the end of the 21st, 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st, how many of you today would say, well, we've almost got the gospel around the world and it's a much better place. We're almost ready for Jesus to come back. How many of you would say that? You see, I think, I think sometimes we look at revival as something that we do. And if we just put all these pieces of the puzzle together, then it guarantees that God will definitely respond. But today I want to propose to you the fifth rule of revival. Maybe it should have been the first because this is where revival starts. Now, if you spend any time studying the book of Acts, you'll notice that in my, my run through of Acts chapter two, I've kind of missed a part of the story. In fact, it's a pretty important part. See if you can spot it. Look in the first four verses of Acts two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Do you catch it? Did you see it? What's missing is right there. Pull back up verse two, Carrie. Go back to verse two. Here's where it is. Where did that sound come from? Now, obviously, if it comes from heaven, who sent it? And then verse four, what were they all filled with? And where do you think that spirit came from? This whole thing started when God sent his spirit. It wasn't because of any other factor. It wasn't because I used to think they were, they were pouring out their hearts to God in prayer. I pictured them doing that up there as they were gathered in that one place in that upper room. Maybe they were. I can't say they weren't. Scripture doesn't tell us that. It just says they were all together in one place. And then God sent his spirit. The spirit didn't come because of what they were doing. It came because God sent him. Now, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that that's the case. I mean, after all, God told us he was going to do this. In Joel chapter two, in the last days, I will send out my spirit on all your sons and daughters. John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my father will send in my name. John 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father. John 16, verse seven, as if two wasn't enough, he throws in a third verse in the third chapter. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit comes because God sends him. Now we're ready for the fifth rule of revival. Revival comes when God sends it. Revival doesn't come because we make it happen. Revival doesn't come because we are finally good enough. We finally did enough good that God's going to reward us. 
Revival doesn't come because of our best efforts. Because we have fulfilled all of our obligations and now God has no choice. Revival doesn't come because we finally have earned God's favor. We got enough points in our favor. We've, we've earned enough that now we get revival. No, revival comes because God sends it. And here is the point that, that we have so much missed because we think Christianity is what we do. Oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins. We wouldn't dare say that we're good enough on our own. But now that he saved me, it's all up to me. It's the heresy of our day. Then again, isn't this how God always works? That he's the one who does it? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do I understand how that predestination works? I do not. But I can tell you this, it works just like he wants it to. Even pagan kings recognize it. Daniel 4, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This is, this is just after, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar has just been an animal for the last seven years. Seven periods of time. Whether that's seven years or seven weeks or seven months or whatever. Whatever it happens to be. He said, he, he, is, he is made like an animal. He is crawling on all fours. His nails are growing long. His hair is growing all over the place. He's not bathing. He's eating, uh, he's eating grass like an animal. He's acting like an animal. He is out of his mind. And finally, at the end of this time, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He says, and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation in a generation. And if that wasn't enough, he keeps going. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does what he wants to do. So if God wants to send his spirit among us, he'll do just that. So if God does it, not us, then why are we talking about all the other stuff? Why are we talking about the prayer and the repentance and the obedience? Why are we talking about carefully hearing and doing the word of God? Why, why are we talking about these things if it's all up to God anyway? Does copper wire make electricity? Does the moon produce its own light? Does a puppet move without a puppet master? We can't produce revival without God doing it. But guess how God does it? The puppet master makes the puppet move. The electricity travels from one place to another on that copper wire. The moon just reflects the light of the sun. God does his work through us, in us. So why do we do all the praying and all the heeding his word and doing what it says and humbly repenting of our sin? Why do we do all that? We do all that so we are ready for God's spirit to move. We do that so he can work in us and through us. If we really want revival, we have to recognize that we're totally dependent on God for it to happen. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down.
Another old hymn says, without the Spirit's touch, it's everything but church. I want us to go back and look through Acts chapter 2 again, specifically the sermon, and I want you to hear how God's Spirit is doing the work. Read it with me, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, this is, this is when some folks are saying they're drunk, and, and some folks are wondering what's going on, and, and the whole crowd is, is, is talking about this. Peter stands up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That had been about 9 a.m. It's way too early for them to be drinking. They're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's just what Joel wrote. He continues, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also shall dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's not talking about himself. He's dead and he's still in his tomb, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstall. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And this is the same Peter two months ago that wouldn't even dare say, I know who Jesus is. Do you want to know the difference? God sends spirit. What is it that's going to take for us to see revival? We can do all the good things that we need to do. We can bow our hearts 
before God, repenting of our sins, broken over how we've treated him. We can devote ourselves to reading and studying his word, prioritizing it and making it the foundation upon which we build our lives. We can seek him in earnest prayer, crying out to God to do his work among us. We can do what God says, follow his words in obedience, submitting ourselves to whatever he wants of us. But what it's really going to take for us to have revival is for the Holy Spirit to come down. So this morning for the invitation, I'm just going to ask that we pray for that. Pray with me. Father, send your spirit down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear apart the skies and be here among us. We know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But Father, sometimes we ignore that spirit. Sometimes we we leave that spirit hanging. Sometimes we just ignore him. Sometimes we turn away and we go against him. Sometimes, Father, we close our ears and we don't even want to listen. Father, I pray that now our ears would be open, that our minds would be open, that our hearts would be open, that our muscles would be ready to enact your words. Father, fill us with your spirit. God, please revive us. Maybe for some of us, it's in spite of us. Maybe for some of us, it's reviving us when we are so wicked, Maybe for some of us, it's reviving us because we're so tired and weak and worn and we're ready to give up. God, for some of us, it's been the earnest desire of our hearts for such a long time. God, may those prayers not be in vain. Revive your people. Come into this place. Rush over every single one of us. God, we need you. God, we need you. Father, help us. Take control. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Christians pray and holy manna will be shout all around. Father, Send your holy manna to us. Lord, we need you. Be with us as we go, not just somewhere around, but be in control. Guide our steps, shape words, empower our hands and feet. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Guide us as we go. In Christ's name we pray, amen.